The Everything Sequel Podcast is brought to you by Brew Bar and Tuity Fitness. The Everything Sequel Podcast contains explicit language, and I will not go to my room. Welcome to the Everything Sequel Podcast. This is the Dirty Harry Edition. Today, we're talking Magnum Force. Michael Schantz here of the How Dare You Awards. Joining me, the man who's got you in his sights, Tom Stewart of Lonesome Whistle Productions. Say hello, Tom. You meet a better class of people in the dark sometimes. <laughs> Now, if someone said that to me as I was entering their apartment for a sexual liaison, right. I would turn around and run and a walk mile. the fuck out. <laughs> that was the that was the the first time I thought about tightrope. In the, in was it? Yeah, yeah, right. <laughs> it's like, oh, what? What is this? The movie where it's revealed Dirty Harry is also a sexual serial killer. <laughs> <laughs> and he had to leave San Francisco and move to New Orleans under an assumed name. <laughs> uh, I think we'll have a lot to say about Sonny. Well, so, and the funny part is, is that that's what John Milius had to say the most about. That's what pissed him off the most. I think I mentioned in our last episode that he uh-huh. hated this movie more than any other movie. And it was because... Like that specifically really uh, drove him nuts. Well, good for him. Yeah, he said, "Dirty Harry doesn't have girlfriends." Dirty oh, Harry. I thought it was because it was fucking racist to Asian people. <laughs> oh, of course not. No. Oh, okay. Okay, I forgot who was talking. Is it John Milius, the director of Red Dawn? Right. Yeah. Okay. Well, yeah, he doesn't give a shit about other countries. No. <laughs> oh, he, so can you imagine how smug John John Miller is? John Miller still alive now? Uh, I think he might be. He well, if he lived, if he lived to the Russian Ukraine war, he must be so smug now. Right. It's like I fucking told you. I fucking told you these fucking Russians. <laughs> oh, that's great. Co- and this is not a digression because he is the co-screenwriter, right? Right. Of this movie, we wish maybe we should have mentioned that. <laughs> it's He's a, still it, with it us. It was a surprise to me, as as was seeing Michael Cimino's name. Oh yeah, is that right? Yeah, Cimino. Oh, of and... course it was. What am I saying? You hadn't watched any of these movies. <laughs> well, I feel like even if I'd seen this movie, I wouldn't necessarily remember that it was written by two of the premier auteur directors of the 70s and 80s. <laughs> That's great. All right, friends. Well, we are talking about the 1973 sequel, Magnum Force, the first in the Dirty Harry series. First sequel, that is. Mm-hmm. And it's directed by Ted Post. <laughs> <laughs> well, Tom and I know. We have done it, yes, Beneath the Planet of the Apes, Ted Post, and... It was, hang him it, High. Hang him High, right. So he has Eastwood previous, too. Right. Um, what's fascinating to me right off the bat about Ted Post 
I think I said when we did Beneath the Planet of the Apes that in the in the Apes documentary that I watched, mm-hmm. they sort of there was a level of disappointment that he that that he was directing the sequel to Planet of the Apes. This sense that he was nothing more than a workmanlike journeyman director. And when we watch Beneath the Planet of the Apes, that the second half of that movie is completely yeah. avant garde. Right. And I feel like this movie the same the same thing here he's making so many interesting visual yeah. camera work choices throughout this movie that really you cannot take the style of this movie for granted and not wh- for a second absolutely like, i i started wondering even at the beginning of this movie i started wondering when did we start attaching cameras to shit yeah well you know, I, like, I wouldn't have said earlier than mean streets but i clearly i was wrong right so when you when that motorcycle is pulling over that car and the camera is attached to the back right side of yeah. the of the motorcycle and then you're getting those interesting mirror shots. Oh, it's you know he uh, he this he's a really he's really interesting experimental directorial style which you know is we saw in Beneath the Planet of the Apes as well. So even right. though the name Ted Post doesn't seem to inspire confidence from the people working I'm starting to wonder him. why. I'm starting to learn that that it's as it's as much a guarantee that you're going to get something interesting as seeing, you know, Eastwood or Millie sure. or Sostromino. So it totally it, I mean I was excited when I saw it and by the end of the film, I, you know, I would be even more excited to see another Ted Post film at some point that right. I've never seen. So there we go. That's Ted Post. <laughs> <laughs> this has been Ted Post Corner. <laughs> Um, so this, this movie is the high watermark, uh, in terms of reviews out of all the sequels, yeah. 70% on Rotten Tomatoes. It's good. No, uh, had an open, I, 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 I couldn't find any information on a budget hmm. for this movie. Uh, but an opening weekend of $6.8 million and it made $39.7 million, uh, in the USA and the world. So certainly, by early '70s standards, I mean this movie, this movie made money. It was a hit. Yeah, and it's definitely, you know, from the title sequence onwards, you can see that it's riding the reputation of the first movie. Mm-hmm. Um, it it's it's it was clear to me that that Dirty Harry was an must have been even if i didn't know this must have been an instantly iconic movie because the sequel even two years later treats it as an iconic property yeah (laughs) right well i mean we were kind of gushing about this movie yeah uh during our ranking process Mm -hmm. how far into this movie were you when you started thinking Wow. Oh, second one. Yeah. Okay. And this has nothing to do with the movie, but it was was the logo that Uh, started to put me in that frame of mind. It's really, it's old Warner brothers. Well, you know, it's, it's, um, it's easy to forget because we gone full circle with the Warner brothers logo. Like the, 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 the latest version of it is a version of the oldest version of it. Yeah, but I don't like 70... that version, by the way. Oh no, it's horrible. Yeah. But but I, you know, in terms of the the graphic, it's a riff on 
the original Warner Brothers logo from the, uh, you know, up until, I guess, like the late sixties, they were mm-hmm. they were using the that the the golden, curved WB. Yeah. But this is, I mean, this is a very modernist looking. Yeah. <laughs> logo. It's like a piece of brutalist architecture. Right. In graphic <laughs> form. Yeah. <laughs> and so a me and and for you know when you're about to watch a police procedural. From the seventies, it fits really nicely. Yeah, it does that kind of grittiness, and then we get into white on the, black on red. Yeah, and then we go into the oh, when we go into the yeah, the same, and we're using the same colors as we get in the titles, which really helps. Right. And this this title sequence is funky. It's colorful. It's right. of the time in the best possible way. The the best qualities are being dated. When I also sent- found it remarkable that because you can tell that there's just somebody holding a fucking gun yeah oh yeah the fact that it's a in slow real time zoom in yeah on the, the gun zoom. <laughs> and you know it's... and i was very surprised i don't know why but i was so surprised because I, I i assumed i was going to see the gun fire i didn't know it was going to turn towards me really you didn't see that coming <laughs> no <laughs> i thought i was going to see like the slow you know, yeah. cocking of the hammer as you slowly like, pulling like the, the trigger. Like the Batman logo. We, we go right. <laughs> in reverse. Yeah. But it, and what, then, of what... course, you get the iconic dialogue from the first movie. Right. So you already get that little callback. Well, yeah, that's it. The fact that it turns out to be an imbass yeah, is, right. is the cherry on the cake. It's just like, the, right? It's like... Makes but also, so you know, that the, the, even as early as 1973, that that's Dirty Harry's catchphrase at this point. Mm-hmm. That that line is is as celebrated as it as it will later be, even in but 1973. But the amazing thing is, it's not going to end up being his most memorable catchphrase. No, it'll be surpassed by sudden impact. But yeah, for for a for a contingent of fandom, that is that is the Dirty Harry line. Right. Um, but also, I just just the the bold honesty of this opening sequence, because this you know this and all the Dirty Harry movies are essentially gun porn. Yeah. So to begin with a title which is a a celebration of the gun in all its glory, <laughs> right? Basically, it it sets the right expectations for this movie, which will have, you know, semi semi pornographic scenes involving guns. Well, and let's continue talking about credits because uh, I think we we talked in our last episode about this series sort of inventing sequel sequel conventions, maybe. Yeah, definitely. Uh, and what I found interesting was that this movie has a title sequence mm-hmm. and then a cold open. Yeah. The next movie has a cold open <laughs> and then the title sequence. And then the movie after that goes back to... A title sequence followed by a cold open. And am I right in thinking? I have to recheck my notes, but is it is it the Deadpool or Sudden Impact that has a scene in between the titles? I think it's Deadpool. Right. Yeah. So, because I remember that really just adds to what you're saying about yeah, mix, I, I mixing that, it up. I had that note where we had credits and then something happened, and then I was like, "Hey, more credits." Yeah. I know exactly, <laughs> and as I said, it's impossible not to get it. Just it's impossible not to get excited from the names you're seeing. You know, Holbrook, yeah. Ryan, David Soul. I mean, pre Skarsky and Hutch, David Soul. Right. 
Milius, Chimino, Lalo Schifrin. Right. And people you even even you know the there there are a few character actors that we know now that maybe we wouldn't have known there, the Tim Mathesons and the Robert Urich, right. you know. Yeah. That kind of thing. Yeah, I don't I don't know if it would have the same impact to then as it does now. Right. I mean Holbrook still hasn't done all the president's men, right, sure. at this point. So maybe maybe there's there's a few there has to you know, and obviously pre Sarsky and Hutch, you probably don't even know who David Soul is. Sure. Um but to me in twenty twenty two, I'm just it, it I'm drooling at the yeah. prospect of seeing <laughs> right. all these actors on the screen. I really am. Um Yeah. It's it's a fantastic I mean, talk about beginning on a high. Right. Well, it's, and I it, think what it says it's it, more than anything. Yeah. <laughs> well, and I was talking still in terms of of our all of our actors. Mm-hmm. Because it it says something about casting too. Yes. You know when you when you have Tim Matheson and you have David Soul and he's a few years away from Starsky and Hutch and we're, you know, what, five years away from Animal House. Uh huh. Uh, and yet somebody could see the benefit of these actors and what they would contribute to a movie. Yeah, and we, that, that's the thing. It's like you you look back. It's true of all these movies, but particularly this movie, just because of the of the sheer volume of this kind of thing. It's where where all the, all these actors will will go will continue to represent quality throughout their right. career. So yeah. there's no point in history you can't look back. And they not represent quality character acting. Sure. I don't know what point that becomes like a guarantee, but we're certainly past that because as soon you know I, when I saw all these names together, you know, I I come to my pants basically. <laughs> um, but but to, you know we we start on a high and that and I think that kind of continues into the first scene, which is a basic sort of expositional dump. But filmed in such a kinetic way that it's really yeah. interesting to watch. Yeah, it is. I mean, it's like an basically Ted Post is treating it as an action scene, mm-hmm. even though it's all dialogue. The first <laughs> thing we see is like a member of the press being literally knocked over right. as they as as this mobster leaves the court, and you know we the scene is obviously performing a number of functions. Functions. It's it's giving us exposition. It's reminding us of what the theme of the movie is. You know, the justice system is set up, set up to let murderers go free. Right. That's right. what we've established from the first movie. That's our starting point here. Yeah. Not our end point, but it's our starting point. Yeah. So we're doing all these, you know, we're doing all these things, but with all this point of view, camera work, mm-hmm. like you say, strapping cameras to people and vehicles right. it's a really distinctive modern style which well probably I, don Segel is not doing in the previous movie because yeah, he's a right. traditionalist a great traditionalist but sure. a traditionalist but i and i was struck by as the mobsters coming down the stairs and the choices that ted post is making in terms of i mean how Right on top of oh, it, he is right. Um, yeah, you feel you, like you're in the middle of a protest, which is right. probably what and, he's and going that's for. what really struck me was that you 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 feel inside of it, but then the last shot is the a, a long shot, and mm-hmm. you're watching one of the protesters chase the limousine mm-hmm. in a sort of frantic kind of a way, and so I was I was 
struck by juxtaposing those those yeah. shot choices and just how interesting it was to watch. And, and you're right, and I think I think I think that's the other thing that impresses me about Ted Post is that he can do the basics very well. Because mm-hmm. there's some great moments later on in the movie where you see that everything's been done in one shot with kind right. of depth of field and width of frame. And it, it really pays off. And so he's not he's not style for style's sake. Which is probably why right. people think he's a journeyman director. But then you but he's able to add these really inventive visual choices into the mix. Mm-hmm. Which to me as a director is win win. But maybe that maybe that doesn't always translate because he also doesn't just do things for the sake of being flashy. Yeah. And your your example that you're using there is absolutely right. Um, right. It's interesting, you know, because we we get the, you know, someone shouts, fuck the courts. We get the news report that this mobster has been, you know, let off the hook for murder that he definitely mm-hmm. did. Yeah. Um. So we're starting where we left off. We're picking up philosophically sure. where we left off at the end of Dirty Harry um, in regards to the justice system. But then immediately we see... He's taken his note of resignation and torn it up and said, right. I'm sticking around to clean these streets up. Well, I have questions about that resignation note. Um, <laughs> <laughs> uh, but then immediately we get, you know, the the... The patrol cops killing, yeah, this, you know, someone. I mean, who, he's this, who, who, he's who, just who left the courthouse. Yeah, <laughs> killing this person of interest, and you know, immediately the 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 idea of vigilantism in the series has shifted. Yeah, um, I guess at this point we don't know whether they're pretending to be a police officer or not, but you know. Already that idea of the maverick cop, the meaning of that has changed in this one right. sequence. Right. So it's not like that. There's it's, dirty it's... Harry and then there's breaking the law. Right. Um <laughs> and then And that's the thing that's interesting to me about this series and this movie especially is the idea of justice. Yeah. I mean Dirty Harry himself has lines like, you know, it's okay to shoot people so long as you're shooting the right people. Mm-hmm. You know? And I think Dirty Harry's mindset became America's mindset Mm -hmm. for how we view justice, which is incredible to think about. Yeah. The influence that this character has had on how we literally view justice in this country, because I think his mindset is still the mindset for most Americans. Right. And it's it's fascinating. I mean, also straight away the movie makes it's interesting, it's interesting to me. This movie doesn't mess about when it comes to making you know making its its political attitudes clear because not only will we see the cop kill this you know, person who has been declared innocent by the courts, we then get Harry and Lieutenant Briggs agreeing with what they've done. Yeah, like, vis- right. like they verbally say, I would have done this myself. You know, I wish I'd have done this. This is save the taxpayers a lot of money. Sure. So immediately, you know, police are in this nebulous kind of zone between criminals and agents of the law. 
And this is all in like the first 10 minutes of the so, movie. Yes. And well, not only that. So after that murder and after the, the talking about it, you have Mitchell Ryan show up. Right. Which I think is a fascinating scene in and of itself because there is something going on with the idea of juxtaposing who Harry wants dead and what Harry's willing to do in service of the law. Right. And when he's confronted with Mitchell Ryan, who mm-hmm. seems frantic and crazy and has... I... Mitchell Ryan seems to represent what the general public who complained about Dirty Harry movies yeah. thought of Dirty Harry mm-hmm. himself. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And yet it's in this scene that Dirty Harry is saying... Hey, why don't you take a desk job? Yeah. Hey, why don't you put in for your papers? You've had a nice long career. Mm-hmm. He is being the most reasonable yeah. person. And it's like he can see what's wrong with Mitchell Ryan. And he's saying you shouldn't be on the streets. It's it's really interesting to it's, me. To... It, what, what is also, I mean, it, it feeds into what this movie does again and again which is something of a contradiction, simultaneously softens the image of Harry whilst right. darkening it. Yeah. So he's allied to the villain's point of view mm-hmm. explicitly throughout the movie. Yeah. He philosophically agrees with what they're doing, but um, we've also t- made attempts to make him more family-oriented, to make it look like he cares about other people. As far as mm-hmm. I remember it, the whole point of Dirty Harry... Of the re- of, of of Harry Callahan in the original movie, he doesn't like other people. He's a complete misanthrope, right. and that immediately changes here. And yet, because of his it's care this and movie, I think where you Ryan. see a picture of his wife mm-hmm. uh, in his in his little small apartment. Yeah, I do remember in the first Dirty Harry movie, I like right at the beginning of the movie, there's some cop that says, "Hey, you should tell your wife or something." Your wife, and he goes, "Ah, oh, sorry, Harry." So you have that information that he was married and then she died. Right. And then he became this. Yeah. You know? But but he's a me like the unprompted he he sees that Mitchell Ryan's, you know, in emotional trouble. Yeah. And he goes to see his wife and kids. Exactly. Right, right, right. And doesn't sleep with her, which is a big deal in 1973. Right. <laughs> but what did you think about the fact that because he gets a call. <laughs> hmm. Oh, yeah, yeah. House. It's sort of like, I. well, no, I think... Cause what he, would have happened? But later in the movie, it's made clear that he's not doing it out of principle. Yeah, you're right. Okay. When they're at the airport, it's very clear. But he does that... let her kiss him. And I just, I just remember, I, I wrote a note that said... What was Harry going to do? No, I, but I, I think that I think if it had left it at that scene, that would have been my reading too. But at the airport, I think it's made very clear that yeah, like, there's some things that even I am not willing to do. Right. There's some. There's still sanctity around certain things like marriage that I'm not willing mm-hmm. to 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 break. But we've skipped over something huge here. Okay. And I don't want it to disappear. <laughs> yes. Um. The snack bar, snack bar at the airport. Oh, so so, like, did you? You're right. This, You're right. This, we did skip over it. Do you? Do you think this is a little convenient? 
that I gotta tell you that it, that an airport based set piece begins with <laughs> Harry saying, "You know, there's this great snack bar at the airport. You know where all like, the great snack bars right. are." It's like what, what you I mean, would like you to mean do is endure go... everything I have to endure at the airport to get myself a burger. Right. It's like you mean before you go into security? No, just at the gate. Yeah. We're gonna go all the way through. Right. <laughs> and I just love watching it. These watching in twenty twenty two the pre nine eleven logic of that. Yes. We're just gonna roll up at the airport for a <laughs> snack. <laughs> and there's, I gotta tell you, there is no person in human history who happens upon more robberies and crimes than Dirty Harry Callahan. And this is, Holy you know, shit. Yeah. That this guy is... can't walk five fucking feet without witnessing a violent crime. And this is a very recognizable sequel trait, isn't it? We're, 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 ta- we're essentially, we're, we're reworking or reenacting a scene from the first movie, but we're upping the stakes. Mm-hmm. So if you see this as the as the equivalent of the um, do you feel lucky scene, which right. also begins in like a like a, a lunch counter. Yeah. And then and that one is eating a hot dog. And, and that's that one, one he's eating a burger. He's eating a burger. But <laughs> and, and in that one, you know, he's taking down a street criminal in this one. He's thwarting hijackers on a passenger plane. In like, that one, he in that one he's bluffing about the number of bullets he has in his gun. Right. In this one, he's bluffing that he can fly a plane, which he actually starts he pushing actually forward starts to fly the plane. Until in the, one of the best moments in this series, he says, "You know, you better take over because I don't know what I'm doing." <laughs> oh, there's nothing better than that co-pilot saying, "Excuse me, Captain. I don't mean to be a problem, but..." Can you fly? <laughs> uh, so I just I think. But you know, and I also reference. I already referenced this in our previous episode, but Clint Eastwood, upon finding out that there are terrorists on a plane, while stuff is still stuffing his face yeah, yeah, with a yeah. burger, saying, "Can I make a suggestion?" Uh-huh. Like you realize in that moment, the degree to which he can handle comedy. Degree to which he can handle comedy, and I'd say, you know, on the film's behalf, like, part of the brief is to make it twice as fun. Yeah, right. Like, the previous movie, it's kind of fun. You know, like, in Dirty Harry, when that scene's kind of fun, but uh-huh. here, he pretends that he poses as a pilot, you know, he actually gets on the plane, he's right. making jokes, it's like, it's bigger, it's more pantomime, they're having fun with it. Right. In a way that's almost like, well, it's a sequel. We need to have twice the fun. Um, it's and I, great. It really, even though it's the setup is so tenuous. Right. I really right. appreciate that it's in the movie. Me too. Um, All right, that's a that's a good start. Why don't Why don't we take a break and then we'll come back? How about that? Sure. And then and then we've got to address the other uh, John Houston dead elephant in the room. Which All is right. uh, why not a black heart reference? Um, which is Harry's resignation status. All right, we'll do that right after this. If you're anything like me, you spend the majority of the day wondering whether you want coffee, beer, or wine. Whichever way you fall, Brew Bar has you covered. 
Located in the heart of 3rd Avenue Village in glorious downtown Chula Vista, California, which is also my neck of the woods, Brew Bar is a coffee shop, bar, and eatery rolled into one delightful package. Tim and Alex run the place, and let me tell you listeners, these guys know their coffee. And after you've been in their company, so will you. They turned me on to pour over, and it's literally all I drink now. If for some crazy reason you don't want to try the best coffee in the world, they've got espresso drinks, all kinds of teas, and even coffee cocktails. You heard me. Coffee tails. And we're just getting started. Bottle service on craft beer and wine, alcoholic and caffeinated potions, an all-day food menu with plenty of vegan options. All served up in an atmosphere hip enough to know you're getting the best quality, but not too hip that you feel the need to drive to 7-Eleven and get a bucket of brown swill. Brew Bar. It's the best place to be for beer, wine, coffee and tea. And if you go, you might even see me. And we're back, ladies and gentlemen. Tom and I are here discussing the 1973 sequel... Magnum Force, the first of the Dirty Harry sequels. All right, Tom, you've got a bee in your bonnet. <laughs> no, I just, I, I want to get your read on something. So, and this is, again, something we've talked about before. How to, how to address something by not addressing mm-hmm. it. And. That didn't happen. That didn't happen. Harry Callahan visibly resigns at the end of Dirty Harry. <laughs> and I think it's clear that they that they are a little uneasy about admitting that that happened uh-huh. in the way he's introduced in this movie. First of all, he gets a very inconspicuous entrance. He just sort of slips into the scene <laughs> almost as if, you know, they don't want you to notice that he's still a police officer. <laughs> And every then, and I thought they were gonna make it part of the of the scene because everyone's going, "Hey, I'm surprised to see you here, Harry. Hey, what are you doing here?" And I'm like, "Oh, because he's back on the force. No, because he was because he was transferred. Right. It's been retcon that he was transferred and somewhat demoted by going to as a. Oh, by the way, he's on stakeout remember duty. when we did. Remember when we did another stakeout and I said, I don't think there's such a thing as a stakeout specialist. <laughs> Apparently. This movie proved yeah, me wrong. right. Apparently there's a there's whole a stakeout whole squad. Squad just for stakeouts. That was the first time um, I think I've, I've ever heard that. And then it's implied that it was his police brutality that led to him being transferred, yeah. which everyone considers to be a demotion. Um, Which I kind of like because it means there's some sort of continuity and consequence for what happened in the previous movie sure. but it also ignores the fact that he he resigned <laughs> i remember that because i i not only remember that because it's a pretty striking image i also remember it because it's how high noon ends as well and when sure. i started to go hey that's how high noon ends <laughs> so i have no one's forgetting this happened right <laughs> It's so iconic that they borrowed it from something else that was iconic. Um, And so I just think throughout this movie, they're kind of, you know, they make a big thing of him later on in the movie being put back on homicide. And, you know, throughout this movie, people are threatening to can him. Yeah. 
Well, like, in all of these movies. He resigned. <laughs> what threat is this to a man who's already resigned? Yeah. So it's really interesting that like they they come up Which with Which movie with, is like, it? Is it the next movie where he says, "Hey, what if I resign?" And they're like, "Whoa, whoa, take it easy. All right? Like, <laughs> come on. Nobody said anything like that." So they 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 kind of they're unwilling to admit that this happened at the end of the last movie. And yet they're sort of, you can see them fudging and walking, you know, like tiptoeing around the issue. Yeah. It's like something has happened to Harry. It wasn't a full, you know, it's like, it's like a kind of, uh, he's talked, it's like Harry talked to his, in between movies, Harry talked to his PR people. And they, they released a statement walking it yeah, back. And right. I know it looked like Harry resigned, but what actually happened was he was, you know, we mutually agreed he would be transferred to Stakeout right. Squad. It's really fascinating Well, it had to me, me like, wondering... Is that because he doesn't want to be seen as a quitter? I, yeah, I don't know right, what's going right, like, right. like, what's the message? Well, I also had to wonder, has he, has he been on the Stakeout Squad for two years now? Is that what I'm led to believe? That's or did this happen I think. two weeks ago? Because he was there because of what he did in Dirty Harry. That's the That's what I thought. But it also is strange that, you know, this 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 uh gangster that just got just got off and he's murdered inside his own limousine. Yeah. And Harry happens upon the crime because he's close by. And then Hal Holbrook shows up. And says, "Hey, what are you doing? You're on. You should be on the stakeout squad." He makes it almost sound like he's been on the. St- Remember, you're on the stakeout squad. That place I put you last week. You know, he makes it sound like it hasn't been that long mm. of a time. Right. All of which so is redundant because he resigned. <laughs> <laughs> That's amazing. <laughs> um. But w- what we do know is that uh, he's still going down that firing range. Oh, yeah. Now... Uh, I mean, this is gun porn 101. Big time. Harry even holds the gun where his dick is. <laughs> this movie's making no bones, pun intended, about... <laughs> what, the, s- the, the, the link between... And how turned on is Harry by... Oh, he's very David excited. Soul's David Soul's marksmanship. He looks. He's flushed yeah. in David Soul's presence. He is a smitten kitten with these is. young cadets. And then he says, "If the rest of you could shoot as well right. as them, I wouldn't care if the whole damn department was queer." Did you get that look from that beat cop? I know. I, I have a note there that it's like homophobia three ways. <laughs> First of all, we're using it to diagnose a psychopath. Right. Second is a one-liner for Harry, and three with a comic button with the officer who gives him the dirty look. Oh, fucking shit! Now let me ask you this though: the second, because because this you're you're the you're a great test case. The second you see all those motorcycle cops, yeah, aren't you thinking, well, those are our killers? They're yeah, all the great shots, having... and they're all close yeah. knit. Come on. But I, I suppose. And I kind of like this about the movie. I, I think I think the mystery elements are underplayed. I think they are because like few... they're going to reveal this fifteen minutes from this right, point but anyway. But but there, there's a couple of red herrings in there, which I think is all you kind of need. There's the fact that you think uh, Mitchell Ryan's McCoy is the leader of the group or the main assassin of the mm-hmm. group. 
which is you know immediate you know there's a, there's a scene in which that is very much disproved right in in front of our yeah. eyes um but what then, i couldn't course, figure the, out the hal holbrook reveal at the end was mitchell so, ryan a so part really, of the group the mystery is the mystery is about who is the ringleader not who are who are the killers yeah. um but that does you've alluded to this already it's like why do their faces need to be so obscured right. <laughs> and my answer, my theory about that is, I think this is like these, these are the proto proto slasher elements of the mm-hmm. movie. This is like you know, um, uh, you know, Italian giallo kind of iconography yeah. Of, yeah. Killer, of the killer. And they are. It's fascinating to me that that they are represented as something so sinister and shadowy, right. and full on assassins, war criminals, you know, serial killers. That's how they're being yeah. represented in the movie. And because those are the build- not only does he shoot the gangster, yeah, there's somebody else in the car, right? And the driver? I think so. Oh, yeah. There's a car full of people. And, and then, then you when you get the to the swimming pool, pool they're just killing every. You know, they're machine gunning everyone. Everyone. Um, Including a naked Suzanne Summers. course you notice the that. fuck um <laughs> also by the way you know who's in the uh the protest at the beginning somewhere no carl weathers <laughs> <laughs> that is great news that is great news um so yeah i i'm i'm just sort of fast and also the way that the movie is structured around a series of killings mm-hmm. seems to me to be to lend itself to that kind of slasher yeah idea uh but i was really struck by that um this movie's really good at at faking you out into believing certain people are the villains when in fact the villainy comes from elsewhere yeah yeah because we get we get a great one well we actually see harry at work in the stakeout squad because they're sitting on a uh, like a supermarket or liquor store or something, yeah. Yeah, with piñatas, because <laughs> it's the mission, right. I think. Right. Um, I got to also got to give this movie credit for how much it underplays the San Francisco ness compared to the other. It's movies. one of my questions for you: this movie and setting it in San Francisco, even mm. that by itself is an interesting choice to me. What, the series? Or... The series, like, you know. I mean, I guess because well, you have the, f- the streets of San Francisco around that time as well, but it's just well, like if you're going to have, like, the yeah. rogue cop, you think of Popeye Doyle and you, you... But I actually think that's the... that's the I think that is one of the interesting aspects of Dirty Harry because it was originally set out as police versus hippies. Mm-hmm. And where's the hippiest, dippy place on earth? It's San Francisco. Right. So I think it's all about making Harry more of a fish out of water. Sure. Okay. With this liberal culture that's developing around him. And this is the what's interesting Well, to the point because... that by the time we get to Deadpool, like the citizens of San Francisco were like, is this really what we want? Do we need this guy rolling around showing us that this is how cops work? You know, it was like a, yeah. a thing about whether or not the city should allow them to be shooting. That's interesting. In the city. Yeah. Um, 
Because when, because when the the armed robbers that hold up the supermarket that Harry and his partner are sitting on, you initially think that these guys are, are evil hippies in the Scorpio mold, mm-hmm. and then the the blonde British gay one, <laughs> who's the leader, yeah. more homophobia, um, punches a black woman in the face, right. and then uses you know, race uses racist terminology and makes it very explicit that he is that he is a racist and that is why he's evil. And that just completely left field. It's like he looks like a hippie, but he's a fascist. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> and it's interesting that the movie does that with cops as well. It's like, you know, here's your vigilante. They're essentially fascists. Yeah. And so it's really interesting that the movie pulls that off in micro ways too, especially if you're used to the Andrew Robinson, Charles Manson sure, version right. of a hippie, hippie psychopath. Yeah. Here, this is a, you know, this, this guy is a Nazi. Oh, well, and that's what's so interesting is also because you might not be seeing the faces of those killers, mm. but you're seeing everything else. You're seeing... They don't like Gestapo. It, it, I was just going to say, because... Because they're motorcycle cops, they look like they're from the Gestapo. <laughs> Which is definitely deliberate. Oh, absolutely. I mean, it, it's, yeah. You know, they didn't really need to be patrol cops. I suppose, and there's, you know, you think about it. I, I seem to remember that these movies got a lot of shit early on in terms of the violence because like that pool scene <laughs> party is visceral. Yeah. You know? The violence in, this, I in these movies it's, it's, are, pre- are, are, you know, it, it really is pretty visceral. Yeah. It's horror movie levels. I right. Think it's all, it's, it's really, it's amping up the police procedural uh, to be something of a horror, you know, like a hybrid horror film. Mm-hmm. Um, That's interesting. Yeah. Um, th- this is, this is probably the only point in the movie where I thought maybe Ted Post's camera work is getting a bit too frenetic for its own good. Because there's a point where the pool I mean, party, I love or the fact that... no, no, when we get to the supermarket, well, the supermarket, and Harry's okay. chasing, Harry's chasing one of the gang, yeah. and there's a moment where the he like the camera's moving so fast that even Eastwood can't keep up with it, <laughs> and then and you see that him and the gang member arrive at different times, <laughs> right? And it's almost like the camera is going so fast <laughs> that even the actors can't catch up with what's going sure. on. Sure. And I thought, and I thought, yeah, but but it also shows that Post is really pushing the boat. You know, it's really pushing the envelope <laughs> when it comes to uh, camera mobility. Yeah, if like his actors can't keep up with how frenetic it is, um, and like my my next, I mean, and again, we go straight almost straight into another killing, which is that when the uh, the, the pimp. pimp murders his uh, murders one of his workers. Yeah. And again, I think that, this actually is, this there's is a... a huge controversy involving that scene too. There's another thing that John Milius hated about this movie. He wrote it as it was supposed to be talked about and never seen, and then mm-hmm. apparently there was some sort of copycat murder in real life oh, in God. which Drano was used, and so everybody blamed this movie. Okay. Well, Steph, I mean, you know, it's oh. voy- it's voyeurist. Well, I, I, like, can we talk about the pimp? <laughs> well, it's because I'm gonna say I'm gonna say nice things about this scene because I actually think it's 
it's very complex what's going on. Sure. But I will cop to it's yeah, it's 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 voyeuristic, it's gratuitous violence in the in the horror mode that you know, I don't buy I never buy the copycat argument anyway. That's what that's a conservative right. bull, that's conservative bullshit. Um it actually might have been better if it was talked about rather than seen. But given that it is seen, I think it's interesting how it's portrayed. I agree. Because it set it sets you up to view the scene racistly. But when you come out of it, you end up realizing it's men of both races who are responsible for what happened to this mm-hmm. woman. And also it's not her fault. And I think that's a big deal, especially in this era of cinema, dealing with these kinds of characters. That's interesting, yeah. Like, we're not saying that there aren't pimps out there who are badly mistreating the women who work for them. I mean, that's that's just established. Mm-hmm. You know, no one's going to pretend that's not happening. But the way in which it invokes the male gaze of the cabbie, and crucially when the cabbie runs away right. when she needs him, that to me, the the meaning of the scene then changes. Which is not to say that they should have had it in at all. I can see why it, it is it is just, you know, it's relishing that a little too much. I, I get that. Mm-hmm. Um, but the message of the scene seems to me it's like without, you know, without the John, the pimp and the guy in the cab who's letting it all happen, this woman would be safe. Yeah. Which seems to me a more complex viewpoint than perhaps you might get at the beginning of the scene right. when you get this woman like flaunting her money, the welfare queen stereotype, then the pimp comes in, you know, right. this kind of black exploitation archetype, and you're, you're like, oh my god, this is going to be terrible. And at the end of the scene, I'm going, it's terrible, but it's terrible because of what happens to her and what men have done to her to make this happen. Mm-hmm. That's what I got from the scene. But when it starts out, I have to say I, I was, I did start to sweat a little bit. Well, and on top of <laughs> so it, we'll you know, the pimp is played by Albert Popwell. And this guy is in every fucking one of these movies but one. Yeah. Including the original Dirty characters Harry. characters have a time. Yeah. And the only reason he's not in Deadpool is because there was a scheduling conflict. They wanted him again. But this yeah, is something really like... we've been talking about lately. Yeah. It is. We've had a lot of examples. Yeah, we? where it's like it's somebody's the idea coming that the... in and playing multiple different characters. We, you know, fairly recently we were doing the Blade series. Yeah, and you've got a guy in two movies playing different characters, and this guy is a different character in every single movie. Chris Chris Farley as well in the Wayne's yeah. World movies. Um, yeah, it feels more like a a repertory company, <laughs> right? Than, than a legacy cast, right? <laughs> it's the idea that the actors are valuable, not the characters, which is fascinating. Well, and I'll say this for Albert Popwell, I think they're right. Yeah, yeah. Because he's great in every single role he is in all of these movies. Yeah, but it's in, but it's interesting that, that that's their idea of continuity. It's, it's off, off-screen continuity, not on-screen continuity right. that they're concerned with. <laughs> um. And here's here's where we well we we're back full circle to the beginning of the podcast. We're back to Sonny. Um, Do you know why Sonny's in the movie? No. 
I don't think I want to know, do I? Probably not. But according to John Milius, that sex scene was added because, <laughs> because Clint Eastwood at the time was receiving so many letters from Asian women that contained oh, sexual propositions. Oh, God. <laughs> well, I mean, yeah, that's what that's part, partly that and sexism is why that she's represented as just freely available, mm-hmm. throwing herself at, um, at Clint, building his reputation as a sex symbol as well. Um, I kind of I like seeing Harry's home life in this scene. I think there yeah. there is a sort of like it, again it feels like a departure from what we've seen. This is the But I like seeing side. how minimalist it is. Yeah. I like the fact that you know he might be this guy Cuz it's like a studio. Him. Right. You know? Women throw themselves at him, but when he goes home, all he's got is leftover takeout burgers and a couple of beers right. and that it's like it's a very unglamorous idea of bachelorhood. Right, I think it's part of poking holes in the veneer that this movie does so well. Well, and also because he's now that he's lost his wife, he's not going to care about another person in that way. He cares about the victims. I think he he like well, that's it's... what his life's all wrapped up in. Right, which you know, <laughs> except maybe in this that movie speaks to why he, he didn't end up quitting. It's like I can't quit. This is this is all I do. This is my life. Except except what's great about this movie is he would have killed all the victims himself who was in the given the chance. Yes, right. Um, it's all, but it's making it. It's where after he's had sex with Sunny, it's made clear that he is doing it not to further the cause of interracial romance, but more so he can say he's had sex with an Asian woman because <laughs> he says that's two firsts. If right. Um, so, and I was very interested as well. Like it felt, obviously this movie's pushing the envelope on screen violence, but it felt very restrained in terms of nudity. Yeah. Given what else you might see at right. this point in 70s cinema, like Mean Streets, where there's like full bush, mm-hmm. like walking around the frame. It's well, like here, here it's like, like the hair is... Let's keep it shadowy. Yeah. Let's keep it half lit. Um, it feels more like... She it, glides under to... the covers... It's like softcore erotica yeah. here, you know. It's that kind of feel. Um, so I thought it was funny. I also think ways, it's a little it... bit interesting that it seems as though after that scene, that it's almost become kind of a little regular thing. She's wait, you know, she she's going to the mailbox for him, like you know what I mean. <laughs> she's buying him fifty beers right. from the from the store. <laughs> right. Which will last him a couple of hours, <laughs> um, and then it's this is where I well I first sort of tightrope when he invites her in and he see he's acting like a serial killer, mm-hmm. but after that I think it, is it his partner who says someone says maybe it's Harry who's doing all this because right yeah they're exactly the kind of people he would murder. Yes. <laughs> um, and that's why I thought it's like oh there's he said there's a movie in which. You might not know that you might think it was Harry who was committing all these murders. Yeah, right. And I was like, oh, that movie is tight. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> so he goes on and does that movie. So clearly, this this idea is something that he's kind of um, this victim vi- villain. Um, and then you get you know the classic villain victim slippage. Mm-hmm. You know the target now the targets are the same people that you would see as the villains in the last movie. Right. They're they're going to be the victims of violence. 
Um, I love the, <laughs> I love that when they're tailing the car from the dock. It's the most seventy sequence I have ever seen <laughs> in any movie. It's a ch- it's a car chase. There's a bit. There's a. They go from a warehouse that says imported foods. <laughs> the music is funk. Yeah. Fantastic. Just like exactly what you want from a seventies police procedural. <laughs> it's good times. And it's San Francisco, which, as you say, you know, streets of San Francisco. Mm-hmm. Obviously, Bullet. Yeah. Um. So, which is I know sixties, but bleeds into the seventies. Sure. I know what comes after the sixties. <laughs> But again, and right around you know, here, we're getting to the murder in the high rise, right? Yeah, and uh, this is where I, this is also part of the movie where I started to realize what you were saying about it being influential in terms of future action cinema, mm-hmm. like the character, his partner early, who's like a lily-livered partner of color paired with a maverick car. Right, I mean, that's lethal weapon. Oh, and forty-eight hours. Yeah, and then later when he when he invites him to his house to you know for sure. to, for dinner for his family, I'm like, well, that scene's in *Lethal right. Weapon*, so we don't get there because he dies. In, the, in, but, in um, this movie, he says, well, "I'll take a rain check." You know, yeah. I got to do something else. It's like, ask me again yeah. in the in nineteen. I'm not saying no because you're black. <laughs> Except he absolutely is, because then he'd have to go to that all black neighborhood that he lives right. in. Um. So yeah, I, 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 yeah, the high rise murder. It's so camp and colorful. It is. It's like we've suddenly we're in, you know, Batman sixty six or Barbarella for like a few minutes. <laughs> You're not wrong. And then you know, speaking of you know, I have to put in the Bond movie plug. What is it about early seventies movies and women falling from high rises? Yes. That's a Diamonds Are Forever move right uh, there. <laughs> and it's, it's yeah, so, I mean, it's interesting. For those of you even... playing at home 52 minutes in. <laughs> and the, rep- you know, the representation is it's like bisexuality, free love, drugs. Yeah. So, obviously, you know, because it's San Francisco, but it, it also shows that even if the politics of this mo- this movie are moving more left... It still thinks hippies are bad. Fuck ass. Yeah. yeah. Hippie, you know, permissive culture is still bad. Right. But how we deal with it. Needs, well, and it's, is it's, it's, it's kind of vague, isn't it? I mean, you, you get that the cops are watching this guy. Right. You get that he's supposed to be important because he's clearly in charge in the bedroom. Uh-huh. Uh, but, like, who is he? Right. Don't know. Uh, you have that kind of weird, strange moment where the murderer uh, <laughs> crashes into another car, <laughs> which draws all kinds of attention, and then he just goes into yeah. the building and kills him anyway. To me, that's right. a reason to abort. But, And then my big question for you, I can't figure out, was Mitchell Ryan a part of the team and then they used no. him as a patsy? No. Or I think he's a total red herring. Just completely. Yeah. And he just happened to be at the building? He's on his way. He's the designated patrol cop. Okay. I think. I just, because yeah, the because cops I... see each other in the basement and he's like, ah. Well, 
Well, he's just like, yeah, he's like. So I didn't know oh, if it was know. a, oh, it's not the murderer, it's so. just a cop, or it's, hey, did you get done with that business we were planning? Maybe there is that ambiguity there, but because it's never mentioned again, I assumed that yeah. it was just pure opportunism and being found out. Mm-hmm. Because him being at the scene is a huge problem, right? And a red, you yeah. know, and you know, a, a twist for us as the viewers who suspects that Mitchell Ryan is. And the one thing the they do do is, team. I mean, they absolutely show David Soul. You know, he walks out of the building and he's sweating up a storm, and like, boy, I just barely got out of there. Right. So. Um, and also, you know, it, it creates a narrative obstacle to Harry finding yeah. out. Who's really doing the murders? Which is, you know, I think that's good screen. Yeah, no, I because I, I like that moment of seeing him after telling his boss, and whenever Harry's talking to his bosses, the mo- the movie is always saying Harry's right, mm-hmm. and then there's a, this moment where they say you're wrong, shithead, and he's like, what? So that's interesting. Yeah, and Harry, it's it's interesting, it's interesting that. Depending on who he's talking to, Harry's politics change. Yeah. So when he's talking to Mitchell Ryan, like you say, he sounds like he—he he basically sounds like a civilian police officer, mm-hmm. someone who's ne- who who's never been out in the field. Um, and then later on in the movie, when he talks to Hal Holbrook, who is portrayed as a liberal boss, he basically schools him on what liberalism really means, right. which is a fascinating moment yeah. in Clint Eastwood's career. If you wanted to, if he was like running for political office and you wanted to do like a, a dirty, you know, like a smear campaign on him, I would use that clip. <laughs> Clint Eastwood tells you he's a conservative, but here's what he said in 1973. <laughs> All right. Well, why don't let's take another break and then uh, we'll come back and finish up. How about that? Okay. That's great. <laughs> we'll be right back. Does the coronavirus have you feeling oogie? Have you been sitting on your couch for weeks? Nay, have you been sitting on there for months? Well, it's time for you to get back in shape. Check out 2 a T Fitness. You can find them on Instagram. You can find them on Facebook. 2 a T Fitness was started by Tina Bernard. She is ready and raring to go to help you get back into the shape you want to get into. They've got all kinds of classes. They've got outdoor in-person classes. They've got online classes if that's what you prefer. Ladies and gentlemen, it's time to get back in shape. You're going to find a variety of exercises. You're going to have strength training, cardio, weightlifting, even fun five-minute burnouts that will push you to your limits. So get off the couch, get into shape. Go ahead and check out Tua T Fitness. Tina Bernard has got you for all your needs. I know her personally. She's fantastic. You're not going to meet a better person to help you become the new you. Check it out. We're back once again, ladies and gentlemen. Tom and I are here. We're going to finish up talking about Magnum Force. The Ted Post movie. Ted Post. Give that guy some credit. Pro post. Yeah. <laughs> now, 
I think narratively we're starting to get into the area with uh, this B story that ends up becoming important with the cop shootout the on the range. Mm-hmm. Oh, I, yeah. This is a. It's a. It's great because it's. I uh, dig it so it's, much. It's a great set piece because it's. Well, I think we know at this point, don't we? It's a battle of wits with the villain. Right. But it's and also what I love. Dis- I, I like a lot of this in the sense of. Even even in the first Dirty Harry movie, like one of the first things you see is you see Scorpio shoot this woman in a pool. Then you see... Hippies about everyone. Yeah, Harry, you see Harry Callahan show up. The woman's lying on the ground. She's got a bullet that's gone through her. But the first thing he does is look over at the skyscraper that's next to that building and go... That you know you you there's these moments where you see the machinations yeah. of his brain. Yeah. That well, he, he, and also he you know you I periodically forget that his rank is inspector. Right. And that he's a detective because so much is made of basically you know the police brutality side of his job. Yeah. The extra legal side of his job. You forget that he is he is a sleuth. Yeah. And this is a great example of that. And this shows his hides... intelligence at work in a way that right. I, he's willing to give up something that you've got to think is pretty important to him. He's never lost. Right. But he knows if he loses, he could potentially get the forensic evidence he needs to nail right. the killer. Um, incidentally, I, I, I'm only talking about Sean Connery Bond films in this in this podcast, <laughs> but... Uh, Goldfinger, the golf course. Yeah, right. I saw that on the big screen recently, and and I definitely saw it's the same. Oh, it's the, definitely the. You saw it on the big screen. You gotta, you I gotta did, tell did. me when these things are happening. I keep. Well, this was in the UK. I didn't think you wanted to fork out for. Uh, you're right. Tickets. Uh, <laughs> but it's also a little bit subversive because it reminds you that all of this is going on under the yeah. watchful eye of the police of the, hierarchy. Of the police department itself, right. That they're encouraging the kind of behavior that is resulting in multiple murders across the city. Right. I think it's fantastic. It reminds you that these criminal actions are institutionalized, right? Mm-hmm. These aren't mavericks. They're, they're sanctioned. Of a, yeah, and I think later on, they even like Harry even says it's a sub-organization within the police. Well, Which... and something really happens interesting after this, like the raid on, uh, what's his name, Palancho's place? Mm-hmm. Oh, this movie, this series also has a Godfather fetish. Yeah, it does. Which also makes me like it, because... Well, when we get to Sudden who... Impact... Well, do you know who this mobster is? Palancho? In the Godfather movies? Yeah. Oh, remind me. Bruno Tatalia. Oh shit! The the guy who kills, um, he's only in one scene. In the Godfather. He kills Luca Brasi. Brasi, yeah, yeah. That's Bruno. No Tatalia. wonder he and looks he's... familiar to me. I should have looked it up. Uh, he looks a little bit like Joseph Cotton as well, which always puts me off. Mm. Um, and he's eating Chinese food, which seems to me to be a very explicit Godfather <laughs> pull. Uh, not yeah. Sudden Impact is more so, but the seventy three. Yeah. And I know, again, Godfather was an instant hit, but it's an interesting... That's a great callback for, like, so, you know, one year after it came out. That's great. Uh, But anyway, carry on, sorry. Well, and so, I mean, you have this... You know, it's a set piece, obviously, but I also (laughs) think it's interesting in terms of 
what's going on in Harry's brain? Because he knows, you know, we're cluing into what he knows. So did he set Tim Matheson up? Was that by design? Because he does so not give a think, shit. No, he doesn't. Um, he obviously thinks it's a possibility, right? Right. That that it could that it could go down that way. Um, I was also I I agree with you. There is that note of, note of ambiguity there. Um, about you know again what we do throughout this movie we question Harry's heroism, mm-hmm. which is why it's such an interesting sequel. Right. Because the first movie never questions it. Um. And then, but you, I'm pretty sure that's Clint hanging onto the hood of that car. It is. He did all his own stunts. Well, you, but you like it. That's it. You, you can tell from the movie. It's like at no point is that anyone other than Clint Eastwood hanging on there. Yeah. And the credibility that lends to the movie. It's unbelievable. Pieces, it really is. It's just, it's just fantastic. Um, and then there's the Godfather, Godfather stuff. Mm-hmm. There's a great. Is it in this scene or the previous scene where we get a fantastic overhead shot from Ted Post? Is it the previous... There's a scene in the station house or here? It's like a Hitchcock overhead shot. Which one? I don't know. I what think are we it's looking just at? The... the precinct? I think it's in the precinct, yeah. Okay. Um. Again, like Ted Post is, is really brilliant. Yeah. Um, and then after the scene where Harry's getting stitched up, Another great one scene character, that sassy doctor. I know. <laughs> right. <laughs> and and you know, the rest of the black people in this movie, you know, early is like a bit of a damp squid. I'm trying to remember, would that be the, the same? The prostitute and the pimp. So I'm really glad we get this yeah. this representative. first of all, you know, a pro- playing a, a professional, but also someone with a bit of attitude yeah. and a bit of like, And I'm trying to remember now. Because I'm remembering a doctor, a, there's a black doctor in the first movie, too, who stitches yeah. oh, him up after that guy. hot dog. I don't know if it's the same guy, though. It's not guaranteed with this series. Right. But but it could be. Uh, or it could just be, maybe he was played by Albert Popperwell in the, uh, right. the first film. And now he's... <laughs> um, but we get to what is like a, I think this is the only thing I knew about this movie before seeing it was this scene in the parking garage, which I've seen somewhere. Oh really? Okay. With the line of patrol, the line of patrol cop bikes. Well, and, um, and that scene talk about Ted post the way that's put oh, together and shot and the shadow and the, it's fun. It's fantastic. It's so good. And, and you know, the, the, the way that scene is written is also terrific because they, they relate it to real events that are going on in in Brazil. Yeah, they talk about the Those death, death squads, squads in Brazil. Um, and Harry mentions it, you know, once before that too with his partner. Right. Um, or maybe that maybe that's when it happens. But it was fast. To, the The moment I think I knew this film was that it was no it was no fluke that it was entering into these questions. It was asking these questions. I think it is it David Sola, Tim Math. Oh no, Tim Matheson's dead, so I think it must be David Sola. He said, Do you know how hard it is to prosecute a cop? Yeah. Now I've just been watching We Own the City, the new David Sola. I haven't Simon started it yet. Mini series. I'm not going to blow anything from it, but it's a you know, it's about police corruption and brutality right. in Baltimore, Baltimore over the past ten, ten, 10 years. This is the same, these are the same questions. 
the same discourses that mm-hmm. were like cops acting above and beyond the law and the same dilemma right it's we live in a culture that's getting for those trying get to take them it. down yeah it's like the culture that's enabling it right and the fact that they're hitting on this in 1973 in a Dirty Harry sequel is, pre- is nothing that's, short of that, incredible. That's one of the things that that makes this movie like you, this movie has to be at the top of your list. Yeah, because um, I also I love how it's I love how it's filmed as a trial, like almost like a trial scene. Yeah, like it's Harry's heroism on trial. If he sides with them at this point, he is no longer our hero. Right. If he fight, if he challenges them, he remains our hero. It's so good. Well, but when you add on top of that, like, will he agree because he thinks he's in danger? So he'll just shine them on. Yeah. And then you have that line where he says, I think I think you've mistaken me, boys, or like you've got, you know, what yeah. what is you know, he's got some great a great line in that yeah. moment. And you think, Jesus Christ, what are you doing? Are they gonna kill him right there and then? And they don't. And and at yeah. first I'm wondering why are you making that choice? But the next scene reveals that you know perfect a perfect, you know, excuse as to why they just go on their merry way. Yeah. Um, but you're right in this in the sense of because Harry has already said they're hey, you know, you kill you killed that mobster, couldn't have happened to a wor- a better guy, you right. know. Save the taxpayers a lot of money. Right. And so you wonder where Harry's gonna lie, and now he's gonna firmly plant himself on one side. Yeah. Um but I'll, like Harry no. does what Harry does, but he's gonna let his partner die for it. Yeah, <laughs> right. <laughs> oh man, sometimes isn't it funny when you watch th- these older movies before cell phones, and you you know you see the the Bakelite phone, and you're like, fuck yeah. man, he's even got to just. Well, I also he's got to wait for that fact... wheel to go back. I love the fact that he that like. Apropos of nothing, he just hangs up. Like you don't know where this guy is. Like he could be coming from the shower. Like he, it's like keep keep on the line. Um, yeah, I mean it's, it's it's yeah. Obviously, because it's it's a feature of the first. It's like a, it's already a pre-written convention in the first movie, isn't it? Harry already has the reputation that his partners die. Right. In Dirty Harry itself, yeah. and they've turned it into a sequel convention where it's something that's going to happen in every movie. Mm-hmm. Either his partner's going to get injured or die, yeah, uh, or a combination thereof. Uh, <laughs> right, right, and <laughs> and it kind of, it's it's sort of interesting. Like you almost feel like they're going to go in the other direction, and that Early's going to survive the movie, and then he very definitely does not. Yeah, right. <laughs> So there is a little bit of play with this formula, mm-hmm. even though it's only the second movie and it only becomes a formula when we do it twice. But by going down that route, it almost kind of hamstrings the rest of the movies that they have to do some variation of this. Yeah. Um, because they're even doing a pool at the beginning of the movie, aren't they, as to how long Early's going to yeah, survive? Right. It's a, yeah, it's a, it's a <laughs> so running game. It's very self-aware yeah. that this is, this is a convention of the... Um, of the series. Mm-hmm. Oh, another fantastic, like, fisheye from below from Ted Post 
I think I've got more camera notes than I've ever had for any Which other one? movie. Of of Harry and the Magnum. It's like a fisheye. Yeah, 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 yeah. Of below of the Magnum. Right. Um. It's. It works better than the fisheye of Jim Carrey. Oh, God. When they're filming that <laughs> video. Um. And we find out, you know, the the final twist of the movie. Now, were you fooled? I hadn't. Well, why why would you think Briggs was okay? In charge, or, or did you when you first saw this? Do you remember? Were you I I can't remember because I mean it was so long ago. I mean, I don't I, remember my initial reaction. I bought that Hal Holbrook was his liberal boss yeah. who was so much of a bureaucrat that he would never do anything like this. Okay. And even Harry says that. He's like, how is this you? How are you in charge of all this? Yeah. He doesn't really give him an explanation, but I like... I, again, I think it's good screenplay construction. I, I like I like that we layer the, the, the villains throughout. I like that he... And I, I just... I, I like that he shows up at his apartment. I, you know, you... Dr- by that point, by that point, it's pretty obvious what's going yeah. on to the audience. But I love it when he's walking outside and he says... You drive, will you? I want to take a look at this thing. And my first thought is, Harry, <laughs> God damn it! Why, like, why? <laughs> the general audience then, is knowing what's going on. You should too, sir. Absolutely. Uh, and then we get this car chase fight combo, which is the ultimate seventies action sequence. <laughs> yeah. Um, like like French Connection length. Yeah. I think that's it's like French Connection kind of. It, it raised well, the bar Well, when you think of bullet... Car chase. And you French... have to do... They have to be a certain length and a certain right, scale yeah. after the French Connection, So right? when you have bullet and you have bullet. French Connection, like, these are the standards that these movies are going to be... And, and I got to tell you, but my note is, this is a damn good car chase. It really is. Yeah. And... Oh, and the ending. Damn... That head-on damn... collision? Yeah. I forgot about that. I was um... like, that's fucking harsh. Even for a, an assassin. I've got a note here that this movie ends in the same location. Maybe even the same set as Escape from the Planet of the Apes. I mean... And maybe even Get Carter. Because I think we said at the time, right? it looks like the shit from Get Carter. <laughs> and it's but I like have the same exact early, note. I've, they are all early 70s yeah. pulp movies. But I, I have the same note where I, ship. I'm like, major Planet of the Apes vibes right now. Because it then, looks like the same exact place. And then I hear a little bit of a sitar in the soundtrack, which reminds me of the Jerry Goldsmith score, uh-huh. Escape from Planet of the Apes. Yeah. The, the climactic fight scene is underlit, so now I'm thinking about <laughs> Conquest of the Planet of the Apes and The Godfather. Again, you know, just it's just what we did in the early 70s. Yeah. And speaking of what we did in the early 70s, we get an Evil Knievel-style bike-jumping stunt. Yeah. It just feels like... It feels like at this point the movie is throwing everything stunt and action-wise at the viewer. <laughs> uh, See, but I'm again, a little let down by these last... Oh, I mean, it's very... It's like it's elaborate for the sake of elaborate. It, it, you could have had one of those and it would have been fine. Right. One, one, but Harry one jumping one. his motorcycle and he crashes, Yeah. which is perfectly reasonable. <laughs> like the, I'm fine with that. Uh, (laughs) you sounded like you're really scared of someone saying what are you what are you an anti an anti-bikeite right (laughs) but you know you have this last cop i think it's david soul right who 
uh-huh. falls off the pier, and it's like a 15-foot drop. I'm like, that guy's not dead. Yeah. He's not dead. And then <laughs> the the other part, that the, the part that really kind of falls flat for me is Briggs saying, I'm going to convict you but with this, your own justice system. But this is interest. But this is interesting, though. I was listening to a podcast recently about Carrie, where they credited Carrie as being the first instance of a jump scare in a horror film. Is this not a jump scare? And this is 73. I understand looking at it now, it's like, well, of course he's going to come back at the last minute. Uh Uh-huh. But jump scare, Hmm. I mean, the other way you can look at it is that they're, th- they're not thinking in terms of... They're not building a language of horror cinema. So they're I was just going to say... The, like, they're riffing off the Bond movies. Right. And how, you know, again, so it's kind of like... It's, a, it's a jump scare before they realize what a jump scare is. Yeah. Right. Yeah. But that doesn't mean it's not significant. But it is a little It is a little bit... And you've got to end with an explosion again because it's so, the and that, that, That's the only thing that makes me realize, okay, yeah. like I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to forgive the movie... This this character making this terrible un unmotivated choice to let Harry live. I'll forgive it because we get the explosion afterwards. Well, you know, it's just again, it's like it's and also we haven't we have not given any play mandatory. to uh, Callahan's signature line from this movie, which is repeated four or five times, which is, "Man's got to know his limitations." So that that's that comes from that is that in the first movie? Is it? I don't remember it being in. No, the... no, no. Okay, so this that uh, but that line, that's a redefinition of the character, is it not? Yeah, right. I would say that the dirty Harry of the original movie is a man who does not know his limitations <laughs> because his limitations are don't use extra legal force yeah. against anyone suspected of a crime. So. That's a big deal, it seems to me, that line. Right. Um, I know it's, you know, it's delivered as a kind of Bond-like one-liner, mm-hmm. but the content of it is significant in changing how we see the character. I mean, it won't stay that way, but at least at this right. point. Right, right. Um, and then I just, I love, oh God, I love the... And we haven't... Harry, Harry like, watching Harry walk away into the sunset mm-hmm. with all the debris around him. Yeah. And, you know, the original movie reference High Noon, this is very much the end of the searches. Searchers, yeah. Oh, it's just lovely. Well, and we we, we haven't yet talked about, because when, when he's in the car with Hal Holbrook, you know, there's that speech about, he admits he doesn't know what to do all the time, but I'm going to work within the system that we've got. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And so that's a that's another tick in sort of the remarkable department for this movie. It really is. In what it's saying about how it views justice. Yeah. You know? It's Yeah, I mean it, it is a it treat it treats the first movie as if it's asking a question mm-hmm. and giving giving the answer. Yeah, right, right. It's like it's like it's like yeah, that it might help you nail Scorpio, but What's the? What about after that? What are the? What are the? What are the cultural implications right. exactly. of what you're doing? Which is a sophisticated track for a movie, you know, 
for a movie series that begins with all hippies are evil. You can do whatever the fuck you want to them. <laughs> um, you could even I give Elvis first, a I gun. Agree, I only, I only agree with the first part of that statement. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I, I, um, <sighs> we're at the credit checks. Now so I have to tell you my next question for you. I don't even know if this movie has credits. <laughs> <laughs> I often like to have something to check. These movies really like a a view from afar, pulling the camera away, roll credits. I mean, if it wasn't for this podcast where, you know, I get great joy pouring over the credits and pulling these nuggets <laughs> from it. I... When I saw the, how this movie ended, I thought it. I thought it. <laughs> I, I thought, thought it. it. I thought it. <laughs> I went to school. I want that on uh, a t-shirt. I, I thought it. I know. After after everything I've said, I've made myself sound so smart. You are said, so eloquent all of the time. <laughs> Eloquence has a price, and I you am, might say I thought. I am it. delighted that you started this with I thought it. <laughs> There's no point in asking you to cut that, is there? No. <laughs> Are you kidding me? That's your next birthday present. Next, <laughs> ne- next time you do a podcast with Chew, if she ever if she ever feels like she doesn't understand something, just remind her that Tom once said on a podcast, "I thought it." Um, but I th- I thought that like in an ideal world, this would be what this would be what the credits are for every movie. <laughs> I kind of went, what's wrong with this? Yeah. Uh, just the cast names. You never break with the movie. Well, and was this the it's, movie? You just carry, you just end the scene, put the credits over the scene, keep the music going. Yeah. You never break from the action or the tone. Yeah. Did we, did we go wrong in moving away from this model? Wasn't this the only movie in the series? You know how they, in the early 70s even, they would do a thing in which you'd see the um, the sort of circular logo for what the stamp for the number yeah. movie it is, you know? Mm-hmm. And you see it at the beginning credits. I think mm. it was this movie, wasn't it? Because the other don't movies don't that. do that. No. And that was kind of a joy to see, because when you see that, you know that at the end, not going to be a lot of credits. <laughs> Well, because also because it's ticking down on HBO Max, and you're like I've got fifty seconds left. Right. Um, but yeah, but uh, I think I think it's also the only one of the four movies that doesn't eventually go to a freeze frame. Yeah, right. And so, in retrospect, I appreciated these credits even more that it didn't end with a literal postcard. There you go. Um, but that's I mean that's that's all I have. I don't know if there's anything else. That's all I have. Yeah. It's a good fucking movie. It really, I mean, it's a surprisingly good movie. With a lot mm-hmm. of depth and ambiguity. Because it's funny to me that it's the movie because... I remembered the least. Probably just because it's the movie I saw the least, too. Mm. Uh, but to go back and see how taken with it I was on this viewing... Uh, was was quite a treat. Yeah. Uh, well, I mean, it it was all new to me, but I would not have expected this from 
the movie that was a follow-up to Dirty Harry. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, some of that is obviously confirmation bias. Like, it, it, it its view of the world is closer to mine than the one espoused in Dirty Harry. And I don't want to discount that because, you know, I'm obviously going to get more out of a movie like that. But I think any I think anyone on any side of the, you know, political spectrum would would respect that there's a there's a count there's a political counterpoint to the argument made in the previous movie. And that's yeah. what the job of this movie is. And that's what this movie did. And that's why it's like such an interesting movie. Yeah, I I mean, I, I, I would go back to this before I would go back to Dirty Harry. I'd get more out of a second viewing of this, I think, mm-hmm. than I have done with Dirty Harry in the past. All right. Uh, which is not to say, I mean, it's, you know, it's it's got a few problems here and there. It's homophobia. Yeah. There's some issue. There's some issues with how it treats women and, and uh, sexuality. And, um, you know, it's... There are moments in the movie where you... Where, it kind of makes clear no matter what these police officers doing in the end it's still the fault of the hippies they drove them to this <laughs> damn hippies but the, uh, but and there's also i the one moment i didn't mention that i think is remarkable is that having gone to the lengths of villainizing david soul's character in the way that they do by making him this shadowy serial killer mm-hmm. when he's confronted with the fact that he killed a fellow officer to, to cover his back. He, he and maybe this is David Soul's performance as well, seems genuinely, honestly guilty about it. Yeah. And so that throws another, right. like, that's another log in the fire. Right. Of like, oh, now I'm actually sympathizing with the villain, which is something that we just didn't get in the first movie at all. Right. There's no way to sympathize with a man Not who's with Scorpio. a, a, sing, a sing-along whilst kidnapping a school, school bus, bus of, of children. <laughs> God bless Andrew Robinson. I love that man so much. He's so good. Um, I was trying to explain to Chu when we were watching Cobra, you know, because he gets to play the uh, asshole fellow cop in that movie. And, of course, Garrick in Deep Space Nine, one of the best character-style Trekkers ever produced. All right. But that's not what we're talking about. Yeah. We have to talk about the Enforcer next. Yes. So, ladies and gentlemen, you're going to have to tell us what you think of Magnum Force in preparation while we uh, talk to you about the Enforcer coming up mm. next. Uh, one of the movies we seem to disagree upon, so it'll be an interesting uh, conversation for us. It definitely will. But let us know what you think. Find us on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter. Send us an email to everything sequel at gmail.com that's it we'll be back soon with the enforcer for tom stewart of lonesome whistle productions michael Schantz here of the how dare you awards until next time say goodbye to everyone tom if you ever fall out of line i'll flop you lower than well shit <laughs> this move this series has some great put downs it really does Never mind all that Shakespeare insult stuff. Go to the Dirty Harry Go series. to Dirty Harry. Find, find the put down that's right for you. There is no shortage of them. <laughs> all right, everyone. Take care. We'll be back.